It's showtime. Don't say it. Please, don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime! It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! Hello and welcome to the Showtime Movie Podcast. As always, I am your host, Show. And can you believe we have actually gotten to the end of February after promising that we were going to get two episodes this month I actually am delivering on a second episode after saying... Actually, I can't remember. Did I actually promise or did I imply or say we try? Either way, whatever. We're doing it. It's here. Here's the last episode of February 2021. A shortened month, nonetheless, right? So that I, th- I think that's even more impressive. Yeah, there you go, right? So anyways, uh, five movies on the go today. We're not going to spend too much uh, time... Before we get into the reviews, because I know you guys, no, no one really likes when podcasts just dick around and, and don't really get to the content right away. But I will say, if you haven't watched the trailer for Disney slash Pixar's new movie, Luca, I believe that's coming out this summer, I want to say, starring Jacob Tremblay, Canadian Jacob Tremblay is actually, uh, it's a very interesting trailer and I would play a clip of it here, but I think it, a, a, a big, a very big aspect of that trailer is visual, right? So I can't really do it justice on the podcast because the last like 10 seconds of the teaser, I think really get to the crux of the movie. And it's really interesting. It, I'll put this image in your head. It kind of strikes me as like, I kind of thought it'd be a call me by your name type movie. And I'm like, wow, is this going to be Disney Pixar's first kind of first kind of movie with like LGBTQ representation really like at the forefront. And I mean, hey, it still could be, but then you watch that last like, 10 seconds of the tra- trailer and you think, oh, okay, well, this is the real twist here, right? But anyways, I strongly suggest you go uh, check that out if you haven't seen it. It's a really interesting uh, Disney Pixar movie, although, you know, most of them are pretty interesting. Anyways, uh, I-, I promised we'd get to our reviews relatively quickly, so here we go. Five movies today, so, you know, I don't want this episode to be like four hours long because you guys know I can ramble and ramble and ramble. But either way, five movies. We'll talk about Judas and the Black Messiah, Malcolm and Marie, Greenland, Space Sweepers, and Minari, which is just an absolutely phenomenal movie. A real mixed bag of movies, right? I I wouldn't say any of them are awful, but some of them are worse than others. Uh, Two of these are certainly going to be contenders at the Oscars. I would probably say Minari and Judas and the Black Messiah, but we'll get more into that when we get into those reviews specifically but I do want to start with Shaka King's Judas and the Black Messiah, one of the my favorite movies I've seen in the past year plus. Maybe it's more emphasized now because of the pandemic, and we just haven't seen a whole ton of good movies. But either way, it's a it's a treat to watch a very intense movie. So let's get right into the review for Judas and the Black Messiah. If you listen to this podcast, you know that I go out of my way to tackle all the movies that will likely be players slash candidates for awards, Uh, not just at the Oscars, but just generally speaking over the course of uh, award season. Obviously, you look for good movies and you look for really interesting stories and all those kind of things. But, you know, when a movie has a certain buzz, you know, you want to talk about it with other people, right? So hence with the podcast and, and hence why we're talking about Judas and the Black Messiah. But it's interesting, right? Because... I would say I get the majority of my 
uh, trailer slash movie news, if not from friends, from uh, film Twitter, you know, for better or for worse, whatever film Twitter may be uh, constituted as. Uh, but, you know, film Twitter usually shares um, trailers online, right? Because I would say the days of just sitting your butt down in a movie theater and watching a trailer come across and you seeing it for the first time, in the actual theater are mostly over and not just because of the pandemic right just because of social media the the studios are sharing the movies online and then once they get shared online if you're if you're plugged into any aspect of film twitter you'll probably see them right and so that is how i saw Judas and the Black Messiah the trailer for it for the very first time but it's it's interesting because i feel like in a in a bygone era and i what by that i mean the world before the pandemic, I would have seen this this trailer for the very first time, like in an indie movie theater or at TIFF or something like that, right? Some, someone talking about it. And I guess I just find it really interesting to kind of observe that that day is just gone, right? I mean, you combine the pandemic with the usage of social media, which I'm sure people are using even more heavily now, and uh, you get trailers like this. And look, I, I was really, I didn't really know what to expect from it. All I knew is that it was starring Daniel Kaluuya, who I love, and Lakeith Stanfield, who I also find really, really interesting. He has such a, a raw magnetism. And, it, and you know what? So does Daniel Kaluuya. Like, you can use that same term to describe both of them, but in different ways. And it comes through in different ways in Judas and the Black Messiah, right? So if you're not aware, this movie takes place, I believe, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. I think late late 60s for the most part. There is some time skippage, but for the most part, 60s. And... Uh, Lakeith Stanfield plays a petty criminal named William O'Neill, and they just call him Bill O'Neill. And, you know, he gets he gets arrested because he, he tries to jack a car or something like that. And he's approached by uh, Roy Mitchell, an FBI special agent who is played by Jesse Plemons. And he offers to basically have Bill's charges dropped completely if he works for him as an informant. And his task, essentially, is to get close to and infiltrate the Illinois party. I think it was the entire Illinois chapter. I don't think it was just Chicago. I think it was for all of Illinois. But either way, uh, Bill was supposed to infiltrate the Illinois chapter of the Black Panthers, who was led by a very charismatic Fred Hampton, of course, played by Daniel Kaluuya. Now, I, I, if, this is a historical a tale, right? This is something that actually happened. The, the actual movie is inspired by true, like the actual true events, but obviously some parts I'm sure are dramatized and some are not. I am not personally familiar with the tales of specific chapters of the Black Panthers. I know about the organization and the, and the crazy stuff they faced in their, in their fight for racial equality and racial justice, and that's something we see reflected in today, which is why I think Judas and the Black Messiah is so important, because it's crazy to look back at the issues faced in the 60s and think to a degree that while it has changed, it hasn't gotten all that better, right? Like, for example, the treatment by black people at the hands of police, the treatment of being demonized and being viewed as something other, right? Quote-unquote other. It's just that really hasn't changed as we saw during the pandemic. We saw all the riots and the protests and so on here in, in North America. There were some protests in, in Toronto specifically, but of course, I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking with an eye south of the border uh, to the United States. And I mean, I had some friends who live in Minnesota and are from that part of the, the, that part of the world, or at least Canadians who have, have immigrated that, to that part of the world. And it's crazy to hear about the stories firsthand. I mean, obviously I didn't experience them, but it's so interesting and so fascinating and so scary, honestly, to hear about them. And so I think Judas and the Black Messiah really tackles those issues very succinctly and very poignantly. And I think when it comes to performances, Lakeith Sandfield and Dana Kaluuya really capture their characters. And again, not knowing anything about these people in real life, capture them in a really raw way, for example, right? Like Bill O'Neill, played by Lakeith Sandfield, he seems like he is 
I don't know if the word is unhinged. I don't know if the unhinged is quite the the right term, but it's 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 just very it's like a like a like a energy just just simmering under the surface is what it feels like. Like at any point he could explode and do something completely unpredictable, and as he gets deeper and deeper and deeper into the Black Panther party, he starts to question whether or not what he's doing for the FBI is right, and uh, and, and he continues to do it, but clearly regrets a lot of it, and it's just that restrained emotion that Lakeith Stanfield plays with, I think, is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. And then you have on the flip side, you have Daniel Kaluuya, who is this just magnetic, talented orator, and he just is standing at podiums, speaking off the cuff, it seems like. Even when they go out of their way, when the movie goes out of its way to tell you that speeches are, by and large, prepared by people for him, right? He's still making it his own, and he is he connects with the audience. He, he, he connects with the audience in the sense that the people who are watching him speak, and he's also connecting with you, the viewer of this movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, right? And I think that is both a testament to Daniel Kaluuya's performance uh, and also a testament to Shaka King's direction, because a lot of it is, is, just, is just really fascinating to me on how 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 certain shots are right like you're looking at Daniel Kaluuya as, as you know from from eye level in the crowd of a people watching him right so you feel like you're watching him firsthand i just think it's all it's all really personal i think that's maybe the best word to describe this movie it feels very personal like bill o'neill his portrayal feels very personal and the 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 portrayal of of fred hampton also feels extremely personal as does the direction and i think it's just it's such a worthwhile movie not just because it reflects the day and age we're in, but because it teaches you something about history. And then it also, you know, kind of brings some just terrific performances to the forefront, right? So I, I have no doubt that when it comes, you know, I always say like, you know, maybe we shouldn't always boil things down to Oscars or whatever. But at the same time, if this movie doesn't get nominated or at least recognized for the important stuff it's doing via the Oscars, I think something has gone incredibly wrong. And not just for the performances, but certainly for uh, director Shaka King as well. We better see King's name plastered all over the Best Director conversation because I really think that, you know, that's how good this movie was, truly. So, again, if you haven't seen it, I really recommend that you go do so. I don't want to spoil too much of it beyond the, the basic plots. Uh, I watched it here in Canada because access to movies these days is always such an interesting conversation because they're, you know, they're coming out in theaters, but how many people are actually going back to theaters? So if you're not doing that, like, and, and I am not doing that, I think I've spoken about that before on this podcast. So if you're not doing that like me, you have to watch it streaming, right? So... Here in Canada, things are presented a little differently. I believe this movie is available on HBO Max uh, in America, but of course HBO Max is not available here. It was very pleasantly, a uh, very pleasant surprise, available via the Cineplex store, and uh, a lot of movies seem to be coming out on the Cineplex store. It looks like Nomadland is going to be put on the Cineplex store as well. I watched Minari via the Cineplex store, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But either way, find some kind of way to watch it, because... It's a really worthwhile movie. It's worth your time. You'll enjoy it. And I think you'll also come away thinking about it a lot more like I have been over the last couple of days. So yeah, there's my review for Judas and the Black Messiah. Another pandemic movie, and I guess now that I say that, all of these movies are pandemic movies. And in fact, I guess dating back to like, you know, last March or whatever, all of these movies have been pandemic movies. But uh, maybe a better way of saying it would be a movie that, if not for the pandemic, would not exist is Malcolm and Marie. Directed by Sam Levinson and starring uh, John David Washington and Zendaya, uh, those two actors are the only actors in this entire movie. It is literally, literally, I'm not misusing that word, literally just the two actors. So 
I don't, I don't want to talk too much about it right this second, but it is really interesting. It's it's almost like a it almost like it could be like a, an art movie. You know what I mean? Like it could be like a like an NYU film students movie if you really like wanted to boil it down. But either way, uh, Malcolm and Marie viewable on Netflix is the next movie up for discussion. Hey man, like you know. I was born in New York City on a Monday. It seems I was on China shoot by two to noon. I don't often uh, look at runtime of movies, okay? I'll, I'll say that right off the bat. I don't often look at it. Like, maybe if I'm in a rush or something, or if I'm doing something later that day, I'll look at it. But for like, by and large, I won't really look at the runtime, right? Uh, I did for Malcolm and Marie after the movie was over because I was curious uh, what the actual length of it is because this movie, I swear to God, feels like it takes three times as long because how much of a chore it is to get through, okay? I know that's not the most charitable way to start a movie review, but it's true. This movie is 106 minutes long, right? One hour and 46 minutes long, which is, I feel like, like not super typical of a, of a drama, right? I mean, when you think of a drama, you'd probably imagine what, like two hours minimum, right? And again, I'm not saying that length means really anything at all. You have some absolutely terrific, succinct movies that take place in about 90 minutes, right? Again, runtime has nothing to do with quality of a movie, but by God, I cannot believe how long this movie felt. And look, it's about just these two people, Malcolm and Marie, played by John David Washington and Zendaya, respectively, directed by Sam Levinson. I actually believe that... I remember reading that this movie was filmed over the course of 14 days during the pandemic at a private beach house or some kind of private house, uh, in a very pretty house, all glass, walls, uh, you know, a lot of really intricate rooms, fancy bathrooms, fancy kitchen, etc., right? Look at the works. It was clearly the, the house of a rich person. But either way, filmed at this place over the course of 14 days, only eight people allowed on set at a time. So not a lot of people actually present there, like Washington and Zendaya apparently each chose their outfits uh, for the course of the movie. And they don't really, to be fair, they, they basically wear one outfit or two outfits each over the course of this, uh, you know, very long feeling movie. Uh, but yeah, Malcolm and Marie. Uh, Malcolm is a, a, a filmmaker who has just made what seems like the movie that will propel him to amazing heights. And uh, Marie is obviously Zendaya, who is his girlfriend, who is not an actor. And that, that they explore that a little later on. But essentially the crux of the film is that uh, Malcolm's movie called Imani is is about uh, the titular character Imani is kind of a drug addict. She's in and out of rehab, halfway houses, trying to get clean, really struggling with it. You know, all, going going around the block basically, right? And Imani herself is based on the life of Marie, who he helped, who was pre, he was present at the very least. I wouldn't say helped, but he was present uh, during all the struggles, and she herself was in and out of rehab, halfway houses, struggling, relapsing, etc. Right. And and basically what what sets off the conflict because this movie is essentially like ninety plus minutes of just them arguing back and forth and back and forth is he forgets to thank her at the premiere of the movie right he forgets to thank her and she feels slighted she feels taken for granted and they come home and this launches into a huge argument now again the acting I would say is the best part of this film okay the acting is by far and away the best part of Malcolm and Marie because John David Washington if you remember he was certainly in Ballers. He was uh, in Black Klansman, Tenet most recently, fantastic actor. He gets a lot of more of the showy moments, right? Like a lot of the yelling, jumping up and down, really kind of yell yell monologues, I guess. And Zendaya, 
Of course, if you remember, she won recently the Emmy for uh, Best Actress for Euphoria, HBO's Euphoria. And uh, that's where she knows the director, Sam Levinson, who I believe is one of the writers at the very least. I'm not sure if he's one of the creators. I, I will be honest. I, have, I know nothing about Euphoria. I've never watched it. All I know is that that's how they know each other, Zendaya and Levinson. And she gets, she's just a phenomenal actress, right? Like, she gets a lot of the really quiet understated moments and i think i come away convinced that she is a rock star right like if you if you didn't already know that or think that i think if you watch this movie if nothing else you will think that zendaya is one of the best actors alive i would probably say right so i look forward to whatever she does next i mean she's probably going to be in spider-man 3 next but apart from like disney marvel stuff i really look forward to seeing whatever film or tv project that she, like a new new project i guess i should say that she'll be in next like like i said just absolutely phenomenal work by her uh but that's kind of it with this movie right like it just feels kind of like sam levinson is jerking himself off for the rest of the movie basically right like there's a whole part where malcolm who gets a review of his movie imani on he sees it on his phone and it's a good review right it's a good review from the la times and he just bitches about it like he complains about it because it, it, you know it, like he reads a lot into it and, and, you know, basically claims that the author doesn't understand or is pigeonholing him into a into a corner because he's black. And they talk a lot about race and, you know, the 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 place of a black filmmaker and black actors in Hollywood, because, of course, as we've talked about on this podcast, it's obviously an issue, right? Like black representation and representation for people of color just in general is is pretty is pretty terrible still. I, w- I would say in Hollywood, things are getting better, you would imagine, but still not great. Right. So he does. It does seem kind of self-aware in the sense that John David Washington, a black actor and Zendaya, a black actor, are talking about these issues that are relevant. But. It's just that, like the, the, for example, that scene with the with, with him complaining about a good review, and then Zendaya's character Marie does kind of set him straight and says, "Hey, why are you complaining about a good review for?" But it just seems like the director Levinson himself, who is white by the way, he is white and, and directed and wrote this movie. It just feels like he has a problem with certain critics and certain ways that film critics do things, and so he is just using like a 10 to 15 minute chunk of his own movie just to get like crap on critics essentially which feels kind of pointless i don't know i don't really know what the point of it is it almost feels like he's trying to get ahead of criticism of his own movie and i think too he talks a lot about like scrapping and 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 you know kind of having to come a long way and, all, and you know all this thing and you talk about like sam levinson as a director levinson himself comes from like i don't know if i want to say hollywood royalty but his father is barry levinson who won the the, the academy award the oscar for best director when he made rain man right remember that movie with tom cruise and dustin hoffman he his dad won the oscar for that movie so it just it just kind of feels i don't know kind of weird for a part of this message to be coming from like a white guy who is one of the most privileged people who probably benefited at least a little bit from nepotism, right? So I don't know. It's just the movie kind of has a strange undertone to it. And then you add on top of it, even though the acting is fantastic, Washington and Zendaya really did the best they could with a really god-awful script, right? And again, Levinson wrote the script. It's, it's just like nobody talks like they do. When you're at, when, when you're arguing, I should say, right? Like when you are arguing in a, in the heat of a passionate argument with someone who you you feel betrayed by, right? Like your your significant other, your lover, or whatever. Like no one stops to say such erudite things. Like 
Malcolm, when you eat your macaroni and cheese, I, I feel slighted because you, you, you are able to compartmentalize your emotions in such a way that I feel like you may be a sociopath. And I'm like, what on earth? Like, Zanea really sells that line, but at the same time, like, no human being on earth talks like that. So, anyways, look, I... I would say this is a bad movie, okay? I would say that it is bad. I would say it's largely pointless. There's not a lot of things that really come to fruition. You don't really get a huge payoff in the end. It leaves very open-ended. And again, you don't. things don't need to have payoff, or things don't need to have a closed end, I should say, to have payoff. But this movie, either way, does not have any payoff, right? It doesn't really feel like you, you get something, you earn a little bit of um, something, right, for, for making it through this 106-minute movie. In fact, it just feels, like I said, pointless. I do come away thinking that Washington and Zendaya are better actors for it, but ultimately, that's kind of it. So if you're curious about this movie, if you're on the fence, I would say just, like, maybe watch, like, the compilation that Netflix will in- in- inevitably put up on YouTube about, like, the best lines from this movie, because otherwise, it's not really worth your time. The next movie on the docket for this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast, and I appreciate you still uh, sticking around and listening with us. A lot of a lot of reviews in this episode uh, is Greenland. Okay, Greenland. Uh, it's been a while since I think really any any really good disaster movie has been out. Like they always get those like schlocky like sea disaster movies like Sharknado and stuff. And I think those movies, to be fair, are intentionally made to be campy. But Greenland, starring Gerard Butler and Morena Baccarin is actually pretty darn good. I gotta say, I was I was pleasantly surprised. Another streaming movie. I get again, most of these are streaming movies. Uh, the last one was Netflix. The one before that was HBO Max, and this one is by Amazon Prime. So let's talk about Gerard Butler's latest adventure, Greenland. Like I said, coming into this, Greenland is a rare disaster movie, right? Like, I, I feel like disaster movies, period, have just, like, not been very good for a real long time. So it was quite pleasant to see, I guess, them even try them being, like, Hollywood, I guess, as a, as a monolith, right? But just for for Hollywood to create a good disaster movie is just feels like a once-in-a-blue-moon in a type event. Maybe it's just that genre, that... that has been overlooked or passed by. Maybe there were just too many of them in a small period of time, like The Day After Tomorrow, then 2012, and all these other movies, right? Sharknado, I feel like they ended up going that schlocky way. And then now maybe, maybe we have come full circle, right? Maybe we, maybe it's kind of like uh, like like the James Bond movies, right? Like they were so campy, that essentially led to the rise of Austin Powers. And then as a result, they created the Daniel Craig Bond movies. And then now people are like, well, we want the campy Roger Moore Bond movies again, right? So maybe you think like, like time is a flat circle, Maybe we're here again with disaster movies, but here you go. Greenland starring Gerard Butler and Morena Baccarin. It's actually a pretty decent flick, right? The the basic premise is that Gerard Butler's character, a structural engineer, uh, reunites with his estranged wife, and he and his, the, the three of them, I should I should say, uh, they have a diabetic son. The three of them, after a, a comet destroys part of Earth, and you learn the rest of the comet is on its way to basically finish the job. Uh, comet Clark or asteroid Clark or whatever. Uh, Clark is on on its way to Earth. It will wipe out all life on Earth. And uh, Gerard Butler's character, as a structural engineer, has been selected to uh, go to the Greenland shelters, hence the name of the movie, where uh, humanity will like bunker down. It's been there; they've been there for like decades or something. Like the shelters have been there for a real long time and only being used now because they realize the imminent danger of a of a world-ending asteroid. And it's about the trials they undergo to get there, basically, right? They get separated. The kid gets kidnapped at one point. 
everyone's it's it, you know dry butler has to kill a man it's all it's all very uh, the standard fare but they make it thrilling the movie still feels pretty thrilling Gerard butler does not have to do an american accent he uh, basically is from scotland he is, he's not pretending to be an american which i feel like is kind of refreshing they always kind of like fake it like he is some kind of like american even though i don't Gerard butler never in a million years like god bless him i love Gerard butler but he'll he's never been able to do an american accent so there you go uh but yeah greenland i i would say the the best thing about this movie certainly is the foreboding score um, you got a, a lot of good acting, I would say, from both Butler and Baccarin. I, I didn't really hate the kid either. The kid is always, like, I feel like the kid is always another kind of standard fare type thing, but the kid was actually pretty good in this movie. I think the most, the thing that stands out the most about Greenland to me is the direction. And I know that could be, it sounds kind of like pretentious, like, oh, you, I, well, I push, push his glasses up nose. I like the direction in a disaster movie. I'm <laughs> so smart. But I, I guess all I mean to say is, much of this movie is filmed kind of like, not like Cloverfield level shaky cam, but like shaky cam kind of, right? Like as if somebody is running with a camera over their shoulder or a camera in front of their face behind or around Gerard Butler and Morena Baccarin as all this crazy shit is going on essentially, right? And it's never it, it's never too like stomach churning, again, like Cloverfield. I can't stand that kind of thing. Or like the first Hunger Games movie, remember that? Those two movies I feel like took it too far in that direction, whereas... I feel like Greenland does it very, very well because uh, you can still you can still comprehend everything going on, but it makes you feel like you are somebody running around as the world ends, right? Like it makes you feel like you are truly a part of it. Like you really are just watching Gerard Butler as he like tries to sneak around a group of people who are going to like beat him up or something, right? Or you're you're watching Morena Baccarin as she like crawls through the wreckage of a department store with her son trying to get insulin, for example, right? Like it just, it makes it feel a little more personal. I used that word earlier in the episode. It really just makes it feel personal. And I think that's probably the best part of this movie they also have a lot of minorities i will say a lot of minorities do a lot of heavy lifting in this movie and i feel like that's also kind of refreshing it's never really too in your face uh, and i know people like to not that that really matters to me right because i think minorities should be given more more chances to do more stuff period but i would say virtually all the helpful roles in this movie are fulfilled by by non-white people which i think is kind of refreshing again maybe a sign of the times we live in but there you go um and yeah that there's not much else to say it's a very compact tight movie kind of short um has some fun one-liners has some great action as well and that's the other thing I'll, i'll end on this the movie doesn't really give you a lot of the disaster right because the the movie ends on the big disaster like you know how like independence day they blow up all the cities and stuff and then it's about for the large part of the movie after that it's about them surviving the day after tomorrow things are happening they're trying to escape like the the freezing of the oceans and the the tsunamis and all that stuff as it's happening deep impact kind of similar i would say of all those movies it's the most similar to deep impact where like you know the combat hits the earth at the end of the film so not a lot of stuff is going on beyond the human personal stuff. And I think that's that's a plus for this movie, really, right? So anyways, I, available on Amazon Prime. If you haven't if you haven't seen it already, I, I strongly recommend it. Uh, it's, it's a fun little uh, flick that doesn't take too much of your time. And if you do watch it, uh, let me know what you think. Because again, like I said, we haven't gotten very many disaster movies lately. The next movie on the roster today is Space Sweepers. We're going back to Netflix for this one. And uh, this is a fascinating movie, a very high-budget 
polished-looking adventure comedy, let's say, right? Probably more adventure. Like if it's a, if you want to do know the split, it's probably like seventy percent adventure, thirty percent comedy, let's say, right? But very very cheeky, right? Like very winky at the camera. It's very funny though. Like the the interplay between the three, like the four main characters, I should say. I guess five main characters, but really four main characters is a kid involved, which is why I'm like kind of is it a fifth main character? Kinda, right? But you know, mostly interplay obviously done by the adults. So the four main characters. Um, is really funny, but there's a, there is just a ton of action. And I will say, I gotta apologize. I believe, I believe in the last episode, I referred to this movie as a Chinese movie, right? Because I kind of thought it was made by the same or a similar studio to that Wandering Earth movie, which I really liked. And maybe I just got taken in by the sci-fi aspect. But either way, unacceptable. That was a mistake by me. Um, but uh, it is a Korean film, a Korean film here. And I gotta say, it is fascinating what they do with language right and we'll talk about all of that we'll talk about the acting the 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 plot the the adventure all that stuff we'll talk about that in the review itself but language when you watch this movie pay attention to how they do language because i find it fascinating but either way here's the review for space sweepers Let's get the plot for this movie out of the way to start, shall we? Because I I would say, I would argue that the plot of this movie is largely inconsequential because it's really just, like, this movie essentially is just one big action set piece followed by funny little remarks and comments, followed by another action set piece, followed by funny remarks and comments. Like, the structure is pretty rote. There's nothing really special about the plot all that much, unless you're just into the kind of, like, post-apocalyptic dystopian futures, right? So essentially, this, this is like the end of the of the 2000s right like around 2090 or 2095 or something right before the 2100s get really, really get going earth uh, as you might imagine is just like a cesspool uh, air is unbreathable people wear gas masks and stuff and the uts corporation is focused on making mars the next earth with like genetically modified plants and you know the 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 founder james sullivan is like this super evil dude he's like the real bad guy in the end and Ends up being very cartoonish. The bad guy is actually played by Richard Armitage, which is kind of funny. But either way, not not a main character, I would say, right? It's it's interesting because basically the, the idea they're putting out there is that because everything in and around Earth and Mars is owned by the UTS Corporation... Uh, what people do, space sweepers, uh, as you might, we, and we meet our, our uh, erstwhile crew, they essentially are, are salvagers, I guess. Yeah, they gather salvage like junk, like junk satellites and junk spaceships and stuff. And they, they fight over, over the salvage and sell it back to the UTS Corporation for money. And because the UTS Corporation owns everything, it's got a huge racket, right? Now, there is a commentary there on like capitalism and environmentalism, absolutely. But I think the, the biggest draw of this movie is the interplay between the cast, right? Now, the, this movie is directed by Joe Sung-hee, and it stars Song Joon-ki, Kim Tae-ree, Jin Seon-kyu, and Yoo Hey Jin. And now these four characters, essentially there's the kind of the captain of the ship, this woman, um, and she is, I believe you, they all have kind of like checkered backstories, right? Like I think the, I think the woman captain has, I want to say she was like the leader or a member of the rebellion, right? The rebellion against like the UTS corporation and fighting for equality and justice. Uh, the grizzled older guy, because <laughs> they all kind of fulfill stereotypes, right? The grizzled older guy is like the former head of the mob, I want to say, or a mob, a mafia group on earth. 
Um, our main character, the young, handsome hero, is uh, a former soldier. He's like the former head of the UTS Corporation's group of soldiers. I think, just, I think they literally are just referred to as the space police. But either way, he is a former soldier. And the fourth person is actually a robot who is, seeks to become, or look like at least, more human. So there you go. A, really, a real weird band of misfits, right? And the tagline for this movie, if you're not, if you might not be surprised by it, is... Uh, these misfits just might save the world, right? And it's this movie's actually described, I said adventure comedy, it's actually described as a space opera. And it is kind of Star Wars-y, because that's the only other movie I can think of that is truly a space opera. Kind of, like a very early Star Trek, Star Wars type thing. But really, it's very funny. The action is very polished. Um, it is subtitled. I mentioned language, okay? I mentioned language. If you watch the trailer for Space Sweepers, okay, you will think this movie is entirely in Korean, right? As I did. I for sure thought this movie was 100% dialogue in Korean. You have to read the subtitles, like, I would say, like, 100% of the time, right? That is not the case. That is absolutely not the case. I would, like, for sure, the four main characters, when they speak to each other, they speak in Korean because they are Korean actors, right? And there's a child involved as well, and the child is Korean, they speak Korean to her, but... It's interesting because most, if not all, of the other characters, like all the, 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 the friends at the UTS Corporation, the other pilots of the salvage the shuttles or whatever, they all speak English. And in fact, they speak other languages as well. There's a part where our hero, the, the captain, the former soldier... Um, he has to speak like they're they're selling something to someone, but they're disguising their voice with like one of those like kind of voice modulator things. And when they speak to the other characters, they're speaking in Spanish. And some of the characters speak in French. Some of the characters speak kind of like a patois, like it's like a like Caribbean like patois. Some of the characters speak like kind of a mishmash between like South African and English. It feels like right, like it's just fascinating how they treat language. Um, and I guess the idea is that the future is so. Like, accepting of, I guess, all people's languages that everyone just got a universal translator installed and everyone can just speak their language and everyone else can just understand it automatically. Kind of Star Trek-like, right? Like the universal translator type stuff. But I just find it fascinating because it was kind of billed as entirely Korean and it's not, right? So, either way, I just I just found that really interesting. And I think that that's another... We talked a lot about, like the time we live in influencing the movies that are being made. And obviously that's true of like every time period in the history of earth and the history of film. But I feel like this is a very 2021 movie, right? Even if it was probably largely made in like end of 2019 during 2020 itself, but very polished action is terrific. The space, the actual operating of the spacecraft they're in looks really cool. It actually looks like how I, how I always imagined Han Solo flew the Millennium Falcon because you never like you don't really ever see him fly it right like you just see their hands like off camera and then the mo- the ship just kind of goes right and you kind of see a little more of that in Solo and they take it like to the next level in Space Sweepers and it looks really cool like it feels like it could be a really cool like roller coaster or like interactive ride at like a theme park or something anyways the movie is just absolutely fascinating the plot I think is really secondary like I said allegories to like capitalism influencing what the future will look like the environmentalism destroying the world uh you know how and how environmentalists deal with that it's just there are a lot of different things you can go into with that but 
ultimately, I really think that the framing of language is is the most important or the most interesting at the very least. Maybe not important, but the most interesting takeaway. But yeah, Space Sweepers, uh, very high budget too. It's a very very like very nice looking movie. So if you haven't seen it, I would I would recommend giving it a watch, especially if you're like me and you like those space Star Wars Star Trek type romps. The last movie we'll talk about on this episode of the podcast is Minari, directed by Lee Isaac Chung and starring Steven Yoon, uh, is just a really beautiful look at the world, I would say, right? It's a very kind. If there's one word I could use to describe this movie, uh, you know, we do that sometimes. Like It's this word or it's that word. For Minari, it is kind or kindness, let's say, right? Because every time something bad, you, you think something bad is going to happen, it just kind of pivots away from that, right? It's a apparently it is an autobiographical look at Chung's own upbringing. So, without further ado, let's get right into it. The review for Minari. We've talked a little bit in this episode about access to movies, right? Like where you can watch certain movies and where you can watch uh, Space Sweepers or where you can watch certainly Greenland or Malcolm and Marie or Judas and the Black Messiah, especially Judas, right? Because that movie is, you know, you can watch it in theaters in some places and not in others and streaming services and access to certain streaming services, all, all the whole shebang, basically, right? Minari, I believe by the time this episode hits all of your, your podcatchers or whatever, I believe will be available to watch online and all the various streaming services and also will be able to watch uh, like in theaters around the world, right? I was very lucky. I got to, uh, it wasn't like a free, like a like critic screening link or anything like that. I just like TIFF, which is how we watched One Night in Miami and another, another round and all that stuff. TIFF is now offering online links. You, you rent it online and you you are able to watch it from the comfort of your own home, although you have a very limited amount of time to watch it, right? Like, I think this movie came out in that, that particular day. You could only watch it from, like, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So I worked that night from, like, 6 p.m. to midnight. So I basically, as soon as I was done work, I spent, like, two, two hours and change watching Minari, like, in the middle of the night. But you know what? Worth it. Completely worth it. Because I would say Minari is... One of my favorite movies I've seen in the past couple of years, honestly. Truly, I think it is up there. I think I enjoyed it more than virtually all other films because it is so kind. And I don't know if it's because that's something the world needs right now, more kindness, uh, the pandemic, and people struggling to relate to one another. It just all, everything about this movie feels so needed, right? So if the, the plot essentially is, and again, I mentioned this is a, uh, an autobiographical take by Lee Isaac Chung on his own childhood, and it takes place in Arkansas. And I'll be honest, if you ask me to point to Arkansas on a map, I have no idea where that is. Apparently someone said it's like the Ozarks and I, I, like as if I was supposed to know where that means because of the TV show Ozark. And you know what? I never saw that show either. So I don't know where Arkansas is somewhere in rural America, I guess. But either way, it is about uh, these two people, Jacob and Monica, who are played by Stephen Yoon and uh, Yeri Han. And um, the two of them are young parents. They have uh, two kids. Uh, I believe, I, I'm not sure how the, old the kids are, but one, it looks like maybe she, the older sister is probably around 10 or 11, and the, the younger son is probably like four or five, maybe six, right? But they're, they're relatively young kids, 
right? And they have moved. They moved from, first from Korea to California. And after saving up a, number, a lot of money, they have now moved from California to Arkansas, where Jacob is now spending a lot of their money on, you know, kind of like a, a huge acred farm where he believes he can, like, become his own boss and grow his own crops and make money that way. And, of course, uh, Monica is, is the kind of person who doesn't really want to do that and feels like she was kind of misled. So, of course, it leads to tension in their marriage. And they fight and kind of as reinforcements, they bring in uh, Monica's grandmother to help look after the children while they are at work. Because it's basically like Jacob and Monica have a full-time job. And then when Jacob comes home, he works on the farm on his own property, basically, right? So they call on their grandmother, played by Yajung Yoon. And uh, Yoon is just absolutely fantastic. In fact, all of the actors, I would say, in this movie are fantastic, right? Like Steven Yoon, Yeri Han, Alan Kim, the young kid, uh, Noel Kate Cho. It might be Noel Kate Cho, actually. I'm not sure, but it's spelled like N-O-E-L. So Noel Kate Cho, uh, the, the older sister, and like I mentioned, uh, Young Jung Yoon. They're, they're all phenomenal. And there are other actors in this movie as well. Will Patton is in this movie, if you remember him from, I, I oddly, from Armageddon and Gone in 60 Seconds, if you remember. But either way, uh, he plays kind of like this old, older weirdo kind of neighbor who ends up being very kind and again all the acting is terrific and like i said before in the preamble kindness is the word of the day when it comes to minari right like you would expect and this movie takes place in because it's an autobiographical look at the director lee isaac chung's life uh obviously it takes place he's a younger ish guy so this takes place in the uh, 80s right it takes place in the little mid to late 80s and uh, first of all, it doesn't beat you over the head with the fact that it takes place in the 80s. Like, you kind of know because you look at the brands they consume. Like, they drink Mountain Dew, and it's in an old-looking bottle. They have a TV. And again, it's it's unsure. You're unsure right away if it's just because they are moved out to the boonies and they don't have access to better things. But it kind of leaks out slowly that they are actually in another time period, which I thought was really interesting. But on top of that, yeah, I mean... When they move to Arkansas, you keep thinking that, you know, they'll be they'll, they'll they'll run into some form of racism, right? Like they go to the church, they're the only Asian people at the church, right? And uh they there like there is a little bit of racism in the sense that like they the two kids meet other kids that have never seen anybody who is not white in their entire life. But the the boy, for example, Al, uh, Alan Kim's character who meets another white child and this kid like he he does he asks him initially why is your face so flat and then he and then he replies it's not and then the kid kind of just shrugs and then they become friends right or he goes to sleep over at the boy's house later on in the movie and they meet his he meets his kind of like rednecky kind of dad and the dad is very kind to him and says hey you help your dad on that farm you good luck out there kid and it's just the entire movie is permeated with that kind of kindness and i find it very uplifting, right? And of course, the largest source of conflict is in Jacob and Monica's marriage and how Jacob is sacrificing everything, even the relationship with his wife and his kids to make sure this farm works because he wants to have something when he dies, right? He wants to feel alive. And I think the father's stubbornness, Jacob's stubbornness, is, is in stark contrast to Monica's willingness to try, but also only to a point, right? Only to a point. And I will say, Stephen Yoon, like, I mean, you obviously know him from The Walking Dead is where he's famous from. If you remember, he was the voice of Avatar 1 in The Legend of Korra. Um, he was in Sorry to Bother You. Like, Stephen Yoon is exceptionally famous, right? He is by far and away, I would say, the most famous actor in this movie. And he just puts so much... He, he puts so much into every expression and every movement of his body. It, it says so much than his words ever could. It's actually pretty funny because... because 
I, for example, know him from The Walking Dead, as so many people do. When he speaks Korean, and then when he sometimes speaks English and his accented English, it kind of it almost like takes you out of the movie sometimes because you know he's he's Asian American, you know he speaks perfect English, and <laughs> he speaks English better than like ninety eight percent of native English speakers um, because he himself is a native English speaker. It's just really interesting because. He's so famous, right? Like, if it was someone else, I don't think I would have really thought about that. But either way, it's just a kind of side a side issue. Minari itself, the movie is called Minari because when the grandmother comes to Arkansas, when she comes to America, she brings with her Minari seeds. Now, Minari, I'm still not exactly clear on what kind of vegetable it is, but it's some kind of like a leafy plant-like vegetable. Like, it kind of looks like like string beans or parsley or something. But the idea is that it only grows in cert- under certain conditions and that... You know, it clearly is a kind of metaphor for them as immigrants, right? Like, because she she talks about how it it puts down roots, and sometimes it can it can grow through adversity, and it grows very well. But once it it takes hold, it grows exceptionally well. And I think the movie over the course it doesn't it doesn't talk about Minari a whole hell of a lot, but the couple times it does, it's very it's kind of spursed in very uh, at very poignant moments, right? Like. When the kids are having trouble adjusting, the grandmother plants it. When the young boy who had never met his grandmother before because she, you know, they lived in America and she lived in Korea, uh, he has trouble adjusting to her. And then they show you later on that they're cultivating it together. So they're growing a little closer. The, the Minari is taking a little better hold. And then there's a very satisfying look at the Minari at the very end of the movie, which I won't spoil if you haven't seen it. But again, it's just this movie is very much linked certainly, as you might imagine, to the American dream and coming to a place and working hard and succeeding, right? Because that is, at least in part, the idea of the American dream. And I, and I got to say, I think it's not only about that, but I think it is, it is one of the more American movies I've ever seen, really. And because it's not just because it's about working hard, but because it's about immigrants coming here and realizing something for themselves, essentially, right? And, I mean, certainly... It also comes at a time where, you know, during the pandemic, violence against Asian Americans is at an all-time high, it seems like. And again, it's a movie about kindness, and I feel like, not that necessarily that'll change things in reality, but I really do feel that it, it's almost like at a stark contrast as to what's going on in real life, right? And I mean, we talked about a little about that with a little bit with uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, and almost at the other end of the spectrum, Minari exists, and yeah, it's just absolutely phenomenal. I mentioned Steven Yeun's acting. Yeri Han is just as good, if not better. I mean, she has so much, so much silent, I don't know what the right word is, angst, not just emotion, right? Like it's all different kinds of emotions like playing out across her eyes. Like she's trying to like silently blink back tears and hold in her frustration in front of their kids. But without, you know, she wants to let her husband know how she feels and she does love him, but also like she can't just stand by and let him like what she feels destroy their lives that they've so carefully built for each other. It's just so good. And then and then you also got the grandmother, uh, again, played by Ye Jung Yoon. And, I mean, she is so vibrant and funny. And you see her try to win over her grandson, who she had never met, and is trying to be there for the family. Like, the final shot you see of the grandmother in the movie is so heartbreaking and it's like it's powerful and it's it's sad but also inspiring at the same time i don't know this movie is just absolutely fantastic and again like i mentioned autobiographical look by lee isaac chung and his own upbringing so i would love to see uh what kind of 
reaction other people have because it's a very specific upbringing obviously right like how many people are korean immigrants lived in california lived in arkansas and grew up in arkansas on a farm right i mean it's like it's super specific but i would love to see what other people's reactions are to it because again like i mentioned in the preamble part uh this movie is so kind and it's so nice and it's so even though they do overcome conflict and adversity it's just it's something that i think everyone should see even if this doesn't necessarily result in like award season stuff i just think everyone needs to see this movie because it is absolutely phenomenal that is it for the showtime movie podcast today i promise we get through five reviews and get through five reviews we did even if uh, maybe the last one the minari one was a little rambly i apologize for that but at the same time i think it conveys how much i love that film i think we could like if we did an entire episode an entire like hour-long discussion with somebody else solely on Minari, I think we could do that because I really genuinely enjoyed it that much. Actually, one thing I didn't mention in the review, Emil Mosseri, I think that's how you say his name, Mosseri's score, the composer, uh, he was, it was great. I would say that's a, a huge part of why I, li- I liked the movie as much as I did. A very sweeping, uplifting score that at times, not at times, but it, it basically conveys the emotion of every moment, whether it's positive or negative, uh, very appropriately, I feel like, right? So I love that as well. I, I had to get that out there. But yeah, another another little snippet of uh, review for, for Minari. But again, that's it for this episode. I'm not really sure what's going to come on the next episode. I'll be completely honest. I think Nomadland will be available for me to watch very soon. So as soon as that's available, that's going to be on the next episode more than likely, which will come sometime in March. I think Monster Hunter, oddly enough, uh, that Mila Jovovich movie, uh, that movie will be available too. So I don't know how appropriate or how how good a double feature, let's say, between Nomadland and Monster Hunter will be. But we'll we'll do them both and we'll see what other movies crop up as well because I'm sure by the time we get to, let's say, mid to end of March, uh, I am sure there will be plenty of other movies to discuss as well. But for now, thank you so much for listening to the Showtime Movie Podcast. Always love chatting films with you guys. I'm glad we got to two episodes in the month of February. So looking forward to many more uh, this year. The Oscars coming up in April as well. So that's just around the corner. So I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I'm Show as always. Leave a review if you can on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, have a great night. Good sense, sense, mankind. Dead kings, I can define Occasions, buzz, writings, flutter your mind In the sense of compliments, the color of time Oh, behave <laughs> Yeah Yeah, baby Yeah